You are listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. from 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 through 25. This is in the Old Testament, about a third of the way into it. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. I'll give you guys a second to turn to that section. For those who are able, please stand with me for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, please stay here for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel and the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of prophets also went and stood at some distance from them. As they both were standing by the Jordan, Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water was parted to one side and to the other, till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please, let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing, yet... If you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes, and he tore them in two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him 
and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. And they said to him, Behold, now there are with your servants fifty strong men. Please let them go and seek your master. It may be that the spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, You shall not send. But when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, send. They sent, therefore, 50 men. And for three days they sought him, but did not find him. And they came back to him while he was staying in Jericho. And they said to him, to them, did I not say to you, do not go? Now the men of the city said to Elisha, behold, the situation of this city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. He said, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day, according to the word that Elisha spoke. He went up from there to Bethel and while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. From there, he went on to Mount Carmel. And from there, he returned to Samaria. This is the word of God for the people of God. All right, so uh, totally um, easily explained passage, right? No, no, no lack of clarity there. Self-explanatory. Um, today we're, um, we're we're coming to the place in the story where, sadly, we're moving from Elijah to Elisha, and it's the passing of the mantle. You may have heard that phrase before: passing the mantle. It actually comes from this story. That's where that phrase comes from. He's passed the mantle. Because in verse 13, it says he took up Elijah's cloak. And that's a, another word for cloak is a mantle. So this is the passing of the mantle. And Elisha is receiving all the power that Elijah had. And this is the very first story where there's no king at all involved. There's no king mentioned. And the, part of the reason to say that is that the, the power of a king is smaller than uh, the power that Elijah gives to Elisha. So it's like this is, transcends all the kings. This is higher than the kings of Israel because this kind of power is not an empire power. It requires no uh, coercion, uh, no violence. Um, it does, it's not something you compel or you twist anybody's arm about. The kingdom power that he's passing along uh, is, a, is sometimes they define that as soft power. And soft power is a kind of a power that 
works um, simply by attraction and beauty and kind of being mesmerized by it. So I think about the Grand Canyon would be a soft power or a Taylor Swift concert maybe. If you're a Taylor, if you're a Swifty, I've not been to one, but I, I imagine there's enormous power there because people love them. And uh, that kind of power is the power of the kingdom where there's inspiration. And the kind of power specifically that we see in this passage is it's redemptive power. It's, it's a power that makes everything sad become untrue, to quote uh, J.R.R. Tolkien. It, it's a power that unravels evil and that can turn bitter salt water into fresh sweet water. It's, that's the kind of power that we're talking about here. So I want to look at uh, kingdom power and then the fact that it is a redeeming power. Those two things. First of all, the power of the kingdom that is not like the power of the empire. Uh, it says in verse 1 that Yahweh was about to take Elijah into his immediate presence. So it starts out, the whole passage telegraphs the fact that this is where we're going. We're, we're going to the place where Elijah is going to be taken up. This is going to be like his ascension. And Elijah knows this. That's why it tells us that in verse 1. I don't know how he knew it, but he knew it. And it pains him uh, to be leaving his friend, his best friend, Elisha. I'm sure part of him is excited about this. Of course, he doesn't know how it's going to happen. That would be a little bit scary to know if God told you that tomorrow you'll be taken up uh, into his immediate presence without dying. That would be both very exciting and very scary. And I can imagine that uh, Elijah feels both. Um, and he feels the pain of leaving Elisha. That's why he says in verse 2, you can't come to Bethel with me because uh, my heart is breaking and I kind of want to just do it. Like, let's just get this partying over with. Like, if you're partying from your significant other, um, then sometimes you just want to get it over with and just be done. And that's, I think that's what he wants. So his heart's breaking. He says, you can't come to Bethel. Um, but Elisha, if you remember back in chapter 19, he was the promise that God made to Elijah when Elijah was most despondent, when Elijah was almost suicidal. That's when God tells Elijah, I'm going to bring in a young prophet, um, a very young prophet. And he's a farmer who's very wealthy, and he will be plowing with his uh, oxen, many, multiple oxen, which is why we know he's wealthy. It was rare to have one oxen, much less multiple oxen. And so Elisha uh, is this young man that God brings in when Elijah is exhausted to strengthen his ministry. And um, Elijah was a father to Elisha. I mean, I imagine Elisha was around you know, 15, 16 when they first met. So a, very much a father figure. And so in verse 2, Elisha says, As the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. And my mind went right to the scene in the Fellowship of the Rings uh, at the very end of the movie um, where Sam Gamgee uh, will not leave Frodo. And even though he can't swim, when he sees Frodo on the other side of the river Anduin, he jumps in the water and he starts to drown. And he says, I'm coming for you, Mr. Frodo. And that same level of uh, passion and desire to care for uh, Elijah is there in Elisha. And, and uh, he will not let Elijah go. I love their dialogue where uh, he's like, uh, let me go with you. He says, no. And he says, please. And he says, okay, but just to Jericho. And then uh, Elisha says, no, 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 I want to go farther. And he says, okay, uh, just to the Jordan then. And, and he says, no, no, no. And he, he just wants to keep coming. And I think that is at the heart of the power of our church. Uh, if our church has any power at all, the power is in the love that we have for each other. 
Um, the power is in the affection, um, the tears you would feel if you um, weren't able to be a part of the church anymore. Uh, that's the power that the kingdom has. It's like Mary clinging to Jesus where she doesn't want him to go away. Um, that's power. That's what Elisha is doing here with Elijah. And um, in verse 11, it says that as they were walking along and talking, I mean, talk about an interruption conversation. You know, I've had a conversation interrupted before, but this is like the ultimate one. As they're talking and going along the way, behold, which means look, chariots and horses of fire separated them. And um, chariots and horses were like the strongest uh, things they knew about. It'd be like a freight train or a, a jet airplane or a space shuttle. So what that means is that these fiery, powerful forces separated them. And I imagine that's to protect Elisha, because Elisha does not want to get caught up in this event. Because pretty soon, those chariots and horses like start swirling or something like that, and they produce a tornado. And as this is all happening, Elisha tears his cloak, and he's sobbing uncontrollably, and his master, his father, verse 11, is taken up by a whirlwind into heaven. And the other two times that word is mentioned is Job, where God answers Job out of the whirlwind. And then with Ezekiel, where Ezekiel sees God in a whirlwind. So we're talking about a twister or tornado. Imagine a 300 mile per hour tornado, like in Oklahoma or somewhere like that. I, I looked at a bunch of YouTube videos of tornadoes. Uh, it's just they're, they're, their power is terrifying. Like nothing can destroy a house quicker. I mean, a hurricane is not even close. If a tornado gets a house, it's just immediately gone. I mean, you've seen the, probably The Wizard of Oz, and that scene always really scared me when um, Dorothy and Toto are brought up into the tornado. And imagine a tornado that is a tornado with fire in it. Not wind and dust, but fire, churning with fire. It's like nature's ultimate power. But in this case, the fire is love. The fire is the love of God, which is even stronger than the love of Elisha and Elijah. It's this tornado of red fire. That's, that's how much God wants him in his presence. There's only two uh, people in the Bible that this happens to that never died. I mean, even Jesus died. Uh, the other one is Enoch, but there's only two that, that did not ever die. And so this is one of two people. And that shows us something about Elijah that's obviously very important. And what I think it is, is that God is basically saying, um, I know you're suffering. Uh, I know, I, I see all of your, uh, the starvation you went through for those three years, the lack of water, your thirst, the way you were exposed in the desert, um, the terrible clothes you had to wear, the, uh, the fact that you were hunted down by Jezebel and Ahab, uh, being rejected by your own people, um, being ready to die. I saw all of that and I want you right now in my presence. And I see that as like this amazing expression of God's love and passion for his son, Elijah. And so he just brings him into, he, he takes him up into his heart. He, he brings him into his love. And then as that's all happening, Elijah's like on the ground looking up at this tornado with Elijah going up into heaven. And uh, he cries out in verse 12, Father Elijah, you were the war chariot of Israel. You were the war chariot of Israel, which is a, is a strange thing to call somebody. You know, we wouldn't probably say something like that these days. But uh, the war chariot was the weapon of mass destruction in the ancient world. 
If you had a war chariot, uh, that was like the strongest thing you could have as an army. That's why Pharaoh and his chariots were so scary to the Israelites, because they had war chariots. So these are major war horses that are pulling along these huge war chariots, and that is what Elisha says that Elijah was like. That's the way he sums up his life. You are a weapon of mass destruction for God in his fight against the empire. Uh, you are a weapon of love. You relentlessly exposed Baal. You like came after Baal again and again and again. And all the injustice, um, he, you unmasked him over and over and over again. And I saw it. I saw you go to Ahab, you know, when, when Ahab took Naaman's, um, when he took Naboth's vineyard, I saw you do that. And, and so uh, the war chariot of Israel, because um, Elijah brought about revival in Israel. And he didn't, even, he didn't even really know it was going to happen. He didn't think it was happening. But if you look in verse 3 and verse 7, um, the very revival he had always doubted is actually happening at the end of his life. And from this point on, Elisha is always with other people. That's one of the main differences in Elijah and Elisha. Elijah is almost always alone. All his stories is almost always alone. But Elisha is reaping the benefits of the revival that Elijah caused in Israel. Because you see in verse 3, these 50 young prophets in Bethel, I think about Bonhoeffer's community in Finkenwald of these young pastors that he was training in the midst of a time of darkness of the Nazis' reign. Uh, verse 7, they are standing on the banks of the Jordan watching liftoff. They're fascinated with Elijah. And so uh, this is the power of the kingdom is this man who has been so inspiring with his little tiny staff and uh, his crazy clothes, uh, his weakness, his frailty, this little weak human being, um, that's, that's soft power, is a weapon of mass destruction to the empire. And to me, like, that's so inspiring. And one thing I love about the Bible, it doesn't give us principles very often, like all these principles to live by. It gives us stories to inspire you, to want to be like, Elijah, to want to um, have your passion fueled to be like an arrow pointing to heaven. I'm reading a biography by, about Rich Mullins, and Rich Mullins, if you, if you know his music, he wrote uh, Our God is an Awesome God, and uh, his, his life was like an arrow just pointing to heaven. I mean, he, he, did, he would do anything for God. His whole life was lived for God. It's a great book, and that's what Elijah was like, and that's what I want to be like. I want I want a double portion of his spirit. You know, that's the last request. It's like the genie comes and says, you have one request. I'll give you one request before I leave. And what does Elisha ask for? I want that spirit that is in you. I want it even more of that spirit. And uh, that's not arrogant. That's not saying I want to be twice as strong as you. I was asking somebody from our congregation uh, recently, like how I could pray for her. Um, and um, I love what she said. Uh, she said, I want to be used to spread the kingdom of God as much as is possible. And that's what Elisha wanted. He wanted a double portion of Elijah's spirit. And I pray that for my children, that they will do great damage uh, to evil wherever they go. And I pray that for y'all. And I pray for uh, most of y'all, the ones that I know, I pray for you uh, every week. And the prayer is these things, like, let them be on fire, like for God, like Elijah was. And so that's the power of the kingdom. And uh, the amazing thing about that power is that it is always redeeming. It is always unraveling evil. It's always making everything sad become untrue. 
It goes into dark places like Bethel and Jericho, and it makes the uh, sour, toxic water sweet and fresh. So uh, the first thing that Elisha does when Elijah's gone is he parts the Jordan River. And that's how Israel came into the Promised Land. So he's like the new Israel coming into the Promised Land. And it says in verse 14, he struck the Jordan, and he said, uh, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he said that, the waters parted. Like, he imagined the Yadkin River just being unzipped, and it just parts. That's what happens. And Elisha marches right into Jericho. And what do you know about Jericho from the other, other stories of Israel is that's where Joshua took them right when they entered the Promised Land. They went to Jericho, and they fought against the stronghold of the Canaanites. And Jericho is now a stronghold where Baal has been uh, wreaking havoc on this beautiful land. And so in verse 19, he comes into the city and the elders say, uh, this is a beautiful town, as you can see. That's in verse 19. And, tr and sure enough, TripAdvisor says, because I looked at images of it, and TripAdvisor says this is uh, one of the very oldest cities in the world some of the most ancient ruins in the world. There's a cable car, there's a water park. That was surprising. There are many fine restaurants, all in a beautiful garden setting. So Jericho is still beautiful. And yet, although it's beautiful, it says that the water is bad and it poisons the land, producing death and miscarriage. And I immediately thought about the Flint River, if you know that story, uh, near Detroit, where, um, this you know, massive environmental injustice occurred where these minority neighborhoods uh, were being affected by lead poisoning in the water and these companies were dumping all this stuff, all this sludge into the Flint River, uh, which was once a beautiful river. Because it was going through minority neighborhoods, they didn't care about it and so it poisoned a lot of the children. And this is where redemptive power comes, is in situations like that, like in dark situations. That's where the power of the kingdom shows up. So verse 21, it says, he went to the spring of water and he threw in salt. Into the toxic river, he threw in salt, which seems like the opposite of what you'd want to do. You would think that by purifying water, you would not put in salt, but it works. And I'll talk about that at the end. But the sickening Dead Sea water, you know, that's like dead, the Dead Sea is like the saltiest water in the world. It now becomes like this glacier-fed uh, the Blue River in Greenland is the, is the cleanest river in the world. So imagine the Dead Sea, you put in some salt, becomes like the Blue River. That's what's going on here. That's the power of the redemption that the spirit of Elijah brings to Jericho. He's reversing the curse. Um, the water has remained pure to this day, in verse 22. And so now the babies grow when they drink the water. Uh, the crops are healthy now when they drink the water. So this is the cursedness of Baal on Jericho that he is undoing with his redeeming power. He's redeeming the waters of Jericho. And the next thing he does, and this is where the passage gets really strange, um, is he walks into Bethel. And when he walks into Bethel, this is a terrible, terrible translation. So I don't ever do this, but if you have a translation that says young boys, or just cross that out because that is not what the Bible says. And it wouldn't make any sense if that's what the Bible said. First of all, young boys don't travel in packs of 42 and curse people. Like, that's not at all what a young boy... This is a gang of thugs. These are like teenagers. These are like the teenagers that, uh, that killed the man in Haynes Park a couple of years ago uh, who was underneath that bridge near Brunson Elementary School. These were 17-year-olds that just, in cold blood, they, they killed that guy. So 17-year-old boys can be absolutely horrible and violent 
and lewd and ruthless. And these words are targeted to inflict maximum pain on Elisha. And Elisha has done nothing but bring healing to the promised land, right? He just turned uh, this terrible water into this beautiful water. But right when he comes into Bethel, and Bethel is the heart of Baal in, uh, in Israel. This is where it all started in, the, in Bethel. So it's not surprising in verse 23 that this gang of 42 thugs came out of the city before he gets there, and they're trying to get him to leave, and they're taunting him. And the words they say are, uh, poor little Elisha, guess you lost your daddy. Uh, you just lost the one who was covering you. Because covering means the one who is like your father figure. So when they say, go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head, that's not a great translation either, or it doesn't make any sense. What that really means, they're taunting him about his loss of his father. And uh, this deeply emotional you know, experience that they know about somehow, and they are they are taunting him. They are cursing him. The man who is going to bring redemption there. And so that's why Elisha turns around, verse 24, and he gave them a piercing look, I imagine, over his shoulder, and he simply speaks a word of curse on them. Now, he doesn't do anything violent, okay? He doesn't uh, run at them with a spear or start shooting them with arrows. He, he prays a curse. And he's cursing the cursedness that is inflicting Bethel. So he is cursing cursedness, and he's basically saying, Lord, deliver this city from all of this cursing and this violence and this bullying of Baal that has taken over the spirit of these 42 thugs. And um, when he says that, uh, Mother Nature does the rest. And who knows if these boys had been taunting bears or had been chopping down forests or what they had done to Mother Nature, but a lot of times in the Bible, uh, when God brings judgment, it's nature that does the judging. Um, it's like the flood, the plagues. Um, it's oftentimes nature gets kind of angry and like turns on us. I mean, to some extent, the pandemic, um, like the stuff that's happening to our environment, uh, nature will turn. God, nature does not let us just mistreat nature forever. And God will work through nature. I, I love the way in the Lord of the Rings and the Two Towers, um, when when Saruman is destroying all of the trees to build weapons of violence. He's cutting down all the forest of Fangorn, like ruthlessly, and using that wood to create like horrible tools of violence. And then how does, uh, how does the judgment come upon um, Saruman and, the, and the, the tower he's building? It's, it's these big trees that come in and destroy it. So nature, and then this flood comes in and destroys these war engines of darkness. And so it's nature responding to the prayer. And these, these two mama bears come out of the forest, and, and the word is maul, or who knows, tear them apart. They don't kill them, but they teach them a lesson. And that is the cleansing of the cursedness of Bethel, is what's going on there. And it's very similar to the cleansing of Jericho's water. It's, it's, it's taking this curse that is in that city and, uh, and removing it. It's making blessings flow as far as the curse is found. To quote uh, my favorite Christmas carol, Joy of the World, it's making his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. And one of the great pictures of this in the Bible, uh, Ezekiel 47, if you don't know that chapter, please go read it. It's absolutely beautiful. It pictures the temple of God. And this is during the exile when they didn't have a temple. And Israel was lamenting the fact they had no temple. But it pictures a new temple at the end of time this beautiful temple that is the church, because we are the new temple. 
And uh, it's a picture of the church in, uh, in the last days, in the, in the new age, uh, in the age of Christ, the Messiah. And it is a temple from which flows this river. And it's not just a river of fresh water. It's a river that turns uh, dead salt water into fresh water. And I'll just read my favorite parts of it. Uh, it says that it gets deeper and deeper as the river flows coming out of the temple. And the waters are purifying the salt water. And it is filled with fish. The fish begin to grow in the water again and mate and, and thrive. And fruit trees of all kinds begin to grow along the banks of this river with leaves that heal and never turn brown. And life will flourish wherever her waters flow. And that's a picture of the church. That's what the church is going to do, and we're already doing, and will do, and will continue to do, is that Christ is making his blessings flow as far as the curse is found through the church, turning toxic, poisonous water uh, into this beautiful, fresh water that brings life. That's what we get to do. That's what the church, we get to go into dying places, sick places, broken places, pain, and God opens these doors and we walk into these spaces as this river of the temple. Uh, redeeming things, whether that be in counseling. I mean, counseling is where you walk into things you don't want to walk into. That's what a good counselor, um, it's kind of like going to the dentist where you're walking into pain you don't want to walk into, but you get healed there. You get healed there. Or family wreckage, you go into a situation where there's massive conflict in your family and you go back in there and you say, um, I'm here, like I'm here for redemption. I'm here for reconciliation. Or there's huge tension at work, and you don't really want to get involved in that, but you walk into that thing. Uh, you walk into that mess. There was a, a bomb that went off in our family, not literally, but like a, a relational bomb that went off one time. And I truly didn't know if the, the pieces we put together, this is in my family of origin family, not the family that I am uh, the father of, but the one I was the son in. And that family had this explosive event and I was sharing that, um, as soon as it happened, I shared it with, uh, with, my, with some friends. And um, one of them said to me, um, you need to take the initiative in this and go back there. Like, go right now. And I'm not saying this is always the right thing to do, because it's not always the right. Like, if you're, if you're, being, if you're in an abusive situation, it's a relationship, you don't necessarily want to do this. But in this case... God was clearly telling me, go back, go right now, go to their house and just tell them, I don't know what's going to happen with this, but I love you. And, uh, and I'm not going to let this end. This is not going to be the end of our relationship. And, that's, and it was terrifying. And I was kind of hyperventilating. I could barely get the words out, but I did it. It didn't go very well. Actually, they shamed me when I did it. Um, but still, I did it because God told me to do it. And that is, uh, that is walking into... Um, cursedness and brokenness and destruction with the power um, of Elijah and Elisha. So um, Yahweh is out to enter into everything sad, everything terrible, everything toxic, and to redeem that. And he does it, and this is where I'm going to end with the salt. He does it in the strangest way possible. Um, you would think that uh, if you're going to you know, purify water, you would, like a, one of those plants that uh, desalinates the water, um, you, you take the salt out of the water. But the odd thing about this story is in verse 21, it says, um, he goes to the spring and he throws in salt, and then Yahweh says, I, even I, have healed this water, and it will only bring life now. And I think the reason that salt is used 
that's the, exactly the wrong thing is because it just shows that it has to be Yahweh doing this. It makes it even clearer that this is not a natural event, that this is a supernatural, miraculous, a sign and a wonder that I, even I, have healed this water and that only Yahweh can heal that water because only God could take a cross, right, the ultimate symbol of death and destruction, where we were at our worst as a human race, where it looked like the whole world had imploded, like the worst thing that ever happened to the world. We crucified the Son of God who came here to heal and bring blessings. And God takes a cross and he makes that the source of life, as Elijah takes salt and makes that the agent of purification. So, uh, on the night he was betrayed, on the night that um, God took uh, the, the foolishness of the gospel and brought about his redemption, it was not on the night that uh, we said hallelujah and raised palm branches to him. Um, it was on the night that um, we looked like we had destroyed everything. The human race looked like we screwed everything up, and he said, no, 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 I am doing this intentionally, purposefully. Um, I know exactly what I'm doing right now, and I am, I'm about to die to give you my very life, my body, broken for you. And in the same way, he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, this is my redeeming blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. So whenever we eat the bread and whenever we drink from the cup, we are proclaiming uh, this amazing event uh, where God takes something that should never have healed the world. The last thing you would ever think would purify and redeem the world. And he uses that as his agent of transformation and healing. So um, I'm going to pray for us as we come to this table. Uh, Father, thank you so much for um, the waters of life that turned my life around, that purified my heart. It was very salty. And um, it, it, was, it was unclean, and you, uh, you have poured out your uh, fresh water into my life and so many of our lives in here. And I pray if there's anybody here um, that's not happened to them yet, and uh, they don't know uh, what it means to be cleansed and to be healed, I pray that um, they would feel, Lord, experience uh, your love uh, when we take this meal. Like I was saying, if you're here and uh, you don't really know what I'm talking about, Remember, we love these rascals.